Welcome to the Straight Talk Physio Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Andrew Junak and Dr. Craig Giambattista. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the seven secrets to getting stronger and hitting your next PR. Uh, this podcast has been a long time coming. Uh, it's something that me and uh, Dr. G have always been wanting to touch on and kind of hit on. We have lots of opinions here. There's some really good research to guide us in the right direction as to what we need to do to continue to get stronger, uh, hit your next PR and keep progressing in the gym. Craig, tell me a little bit about some of the things that we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, what what caused you to want to talk a little bit more about this topic? Have, have you been through the, the dreaded plateau in the gym or have you suffered from, you know, missing out on an XPR? Like where, where are you in your fitness journey? Yeah. So I've absolutely hit the, the plateau thing. And I think just like everybody else, like, you know, of course I have my own background knowledge, but I Googled it too, you know, cause I want to know what's out there. And uh, if you like search for this stuff, like there's, there's a lot of lists out there and they all have like some pretty similar stuff. So I think one of my inspirations for talking about this is you know, yeah, we're going to talk about some of the things that maybe other lists have, but also kind of coming up with some stuff after reading them that like, maybe we didn't see this on there, or this is something that I feel is important. So this will kind of be our opportunity to give you maybe uh, some new takes on some of all the old lists that have been out there, maybe an opinion from like a rehab person that says we see this not only in rehab, but we also see it into the gym. Uh, and it can kind of help you break through the plateau because it's like a, it's a pretty frustrating thing, you know. Uh, even for someone that I would say when it comes in the strength training world, I scratch the surface, you know, and what I'm doing. Um, and it's like, nobody wants to hit these peaks. Um, and I think having some strategies to get over it is going to be valuable. So hopefully anyone listening today can, you know, maybe they've read these lists in the past, or maybe they pick up something new and incorporate it. And hopefully someone can, you know, break that next best lift. What about you? Is this something that you use? Is this something that you, you know, come in contact with? Listen, man, my life has been a series of like strength training plateaus. Um, you know, I'd say for me, I played a uh, college basketball as a walk on at the University of Toledo. And I played some time at Mount Union um, before having some injuries. Funny enough that uh, just I walked away from basketball at that point. Um, I just knew that I was destined to do different things. Um, but during those time frames, my goals were always, I need to get quicker. I need to jump higher. So my plateaus weren't necessarily just strength or force-based. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, mine were performance-based in terms of being able to jump higher, uh, run faster, have a quicker first step. Um, I was always very good at working on my basketball skill game, but when it came to some of those athletic feats, um, I just didn't have the resources or the know-how to get to where I needed to go. So hopefully some of the stuff that we talk about here can help, um, not just people who want to get stronger and hit their next PR, but just any athlete who is struggling to, uh, take their performance to the next level, because this stuff it's multifactorial. Um, you know, that's why there's more than one secret. There's seven of them. <laughs> so Craig, why don't you get us started with the first secret that we're going to talk about today? Um, viewers, I hope you guys really enjoy this one. You kind of hit on the first one. And our, our first uh, topic here is specificity is king. You know, there's millions of exercises out there, but I typically tell people, you know, what I'm working with them is, you know, have a purpose. If you, if you have a goal, you know, like the things you're doing need to match where you want to end up. If you just go into the gym without a plan and you're like, well, I'll work on a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I mean, that's good for just like general strength and conditioning. But if you want to get good at something, whether it be a sport or 
powerlifting or working on your speed or, you know, if you're in the gym purely for aesthetics, which I respect, you know, nothing wrong about that. You want to make look sure good, that, good. yeah, look good, feel good. I'm always about it. Of course. Um, so when you get in there, when you're making, when you're programming, it should be specific to that, you know? Um, also like accessory work is great, but nothing sometimes can compare to like the specific movement pattern you want to work on. Like a good example is let's say you want to get better at squatting, uh, doing all the accessory work and finding out where you need to work on and where you have some general weaknesses, you absolutely need to address that. But if you're not squatting, then you're not getting better at it. So just make sure when you're doing your programming um, or you're, you're reaching a specific goal, make sure you have a purpose in mind and then make sure that the tasks you're choosing or the exercises you're choosing are sort of specific to where you want to go. And I think sometimes people get lost in that specificity um, or people don't know. And that's why it's nice to, you know, see a PT, see a good physical or a, not a physical trainer, see a good personal trainer and they can kind of help you smooth those edges around. Um, is that something you see, Drew? Um, or how do you get specific when, you know, you're doing your programming? So this is like pretty much, I get this question all the time because uh, I work with CrossFitters. So working with CrossFitters, what is their motto? Constantly varied, constantly varied. Um, so it is the opposite of specificity, to be honest. So because their programming is so constantly varied, uh, they become skilled at a lot of different things, but they don't always become very good at one particular movement unless they're training that outside of their CrossFit workouts. Um, so for example, uh, a sport that is very good at specificity, probably the best at specificity out of every sport out there um, would be like powerlifters. Because if you go talk to a true powerlifter, all of their accessory work is a variation of the movement that they're, that they're trying to work on. So for example, somebody who is trying to build up their squat, a powerlifter trying to work on their squat, what will they do to improve their squat? More squats. They'll do that at various loads. They'll do them at different speeds. They'll do pause squats, box squats. They'll have so many variations of accessory work, but all of it is related and geared towards improving their squat. Um, and they do the same thing with bench press. And then they do the same thing with deadlifts. Uh, and specificity is king because those are the three movements that typical powerlifters will have to do at competitions and meets. So what do they do? They train those movements specifically with different variations. Now to avoid injury, is it good to throw in other types of accessory work like single leg stuff and different things like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But if you're chasing a goal of a higher squat, you need to be squatting more. So when my CrossFitters come to me and say, hey, Dr. Drew, I've been deadlifting or I, I want to increase my deadlift. It hasn't gone up and it's been like eight months. I'm frustrated. I don't know what to do. I say, well, how many times a week are you deadlifting? They say, well, I just go to CrossFit class. And I say, well, okay, you should probably consider deadlifting more frequently or doing different variations of a deadlift um, in order to build that strength, build that total volume. Um, and with that being said, that kind of leads us into our next topic, Craig. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about why volume matters when it comes to uh, building strength and hitting PRs? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking volume, um, we're talking, you know, how many reps are you doing? How many sets are you doing? You know, how much weight are you doing? Like we talked about specificity and this volume aspect of it is crucial because how much load you're using and how often you're doing it is going to relate to what you're working towards. You know, it's 
depending on the person, and this can be a whole conversation in and of itself, is like how many sets and reps you can be, you should be doing or can be doing, you know, you can kind of dig yourself down into like this deep rabbit hole of that. But for our purposes today, uh, from a pretty basic standpoint is, are you doing a lot of reps to get good at muscle hypertrophy or endurance? Or are you doing a low number of reps because you want to get really powerful or, you know, really strong? Uh, so it kind of kind of goes back to that specificity. And if you have a goal of, I want to, you know, bench press as much weight as humanly possible, you should maybe consider doing some accessory work with a higher rep scheme, but you should also be focusing on like that lower rep scheme as well. You know, if you're like, I want to, I want to do a bench press competition, um, but you're only doing, you know, sets of 15 to 20 on bench rep and then you bench press and then you expect to have this, you know, massive, you know, failure out one rep max on the bench, you know, it just, it's just not going to add up, you know, so you have to sort of be diligent uh, about that. Um, and the big thing I say with this is like, just kind of know when to progress and when to regress with some of this volume stuff. Like if you're having uh, you know, if it's getting easy, you need to add more, or if you're having poor form, if you're having a bad day, you can take some away, you know, just kind of keep this volume stuff fluid. But again, just know what goal you're working for and then make sure you're getting educated on the correct volume to sort of to match that. Is that something that you come across, Drew? Like, how do you guys typically talk about volume in, in your clinic? So we can track it. Uh, you can take the formulas reps times sets times weight, and then it will give you a hard concrete number. And then you can increase that volume week by week. You can increase that volume biweekly. The faster that you increase the volume for a specific movement, um, the more likely you probably are to get hurt. We have some good research out there that shows dramatic changes in volume over a short period of time can lead to injury. Um, and obviously this is also person dependent um, and sport dependent too. But ultimately you want your volume to kind of be on this linear path upwards from a week to week or biweekly basis. Um, and it should not increase too dramatically. So you can actually track those numbers and then you can program in volume and you, I mean, you can be very data-driven with this stuff. And the more data-driven that you can get, uh, the more likely you're going to be able to hit your goals. But you have to have a standard or a set goal at the start. So most people, I think strength coaches do a really good job of taking volume into account, uh, total volume, and then volume for specific movements uh, and volume for body parts, because all of that needs to be um, kind of analyzed as you move through programming. So a really good programmer will be looking at all of that. Um, other types of programs that are a little bit more general, uh, that's where people tend to get hurt, like with different types of group fitness where everyone's doing the same thing. Um, you know, obviously they might have three different tracks, like a beginner's track and intermediate, and then like a, an RX or an expert track. Um, and then the, the person who is, you know, attending the class gets to decide, oh, I probably fit into this one, or I'm more, I can go in more intermediate with these movements, or I can do more of the harder movements today. So, um, you know, volume is really tricky and you do need to push yourself because more volume will lead to more gains, but too much volume too soon, uh, can also cause some problems. Then you got to see me or Craig. So. Yeah, good point. And I think that the volume thing it's, it's tough, but I think it's like such, like you said, such a critical thing. And it's nice because you can be so objective with it, you know, like this can be pen and paper stuff. It's real black and white, which is good. Um, which kind of, and you mentioned seeing us, if something goes awry, which brings us to like point number three, which pain can hurt your gains. Um, and we know like 
pain inhibits muscle function. It increases injury. It can make you compensate. Like we know all that. We know all that. And, and Drew, I'll let you, let you talk on that in a second, but I'm a big, uh, pain science, neurophysiological kind of person. So I'll give you maybe like another interesting take on pain during exercise. And the analogy sometimes I'll use uh, with some of my patients is like, uh, think about like pain and we're going to relate it to someone, to a baseball pitcher, for example. So let's say uh, pro baseball players have been practicing and learning pitching for years and years and years. Um, so let's say I took the ball out of their hands and I said, forget how to throw a baseball. It would take them a very long time to unlearn how to do that. You know, like even months later, they could probably pick the baseball up and just throw just as good or mechanically sound as they did, you know, before they stopped. Um, but let's say, you know, me, I'm 31. Let's say I now want to be a pro baseball pitcher and I start learning how to pitch right now. And I'm like in class learning how to pitch for like a week. And then I stop pitching and a month goes by, uh, you know, I wouldn't have that same sound mechanics. I would kind of forget how to throw the baseball. Working out and exercising and moving with pain is kind of the same way. Uh, so let's say something, your shoulder hurts and you decide that you're just going to work through it for, you know, for example. And now you've been lifting with this painful shoulder for two years. Uh, and eventually it gets to the point where now you can't lift the way that you want to lift your body has now learned like our baseball pitcher to be in pain with certain movements. And it's hard to unlearn that. It takes a lot of time versus, uh, you know, let's say you just tweak your shoulder doing a snatch and you say, I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to rehab this. You're in pain a much shorter period of time. Your brain doesn't really get the chance to learn to be in that painful state. Like I said, this is some theoretical stuff, but I think it's a little piece that people technically, they don't really think about. Uh, and it just kind of highlights the importance of why it's like, it's just kind of nice to address this stuff and it doesn't have to be shutting down from working out. I think it just has to turn into uh, modification uh, and education, which I think are the, the key things here. And I think it's something that we tend to, we don't really think about when it comes to training when you're injured. So uh, anything to add there, Drew, or how do you go about like, cause you're, you work with like much higher level people uh, than I do, I would say, what do you talk about when it comes to, you know, pain and training? Well, first that, that analogy that you use is awesome because I, I haven't even heard it put in a way like that. I think a lot of times we, we attribute, it's very easy to, for somebody to say, Oh, I learned how to shoot a basketball or I learned how to, you know, sprint, or I learned how to, you know, X, Y, and Z mechanics. But a lot of times we don't attribute that learning to pain. You know, we think about learning in the sense of going to school and learning how to do certain types of math problems and things like that. But yeah, your body absolutely can learn pain and it can get used to doing a movement in pain. And a lot of times the, the longer that pain is present, um, the more that learned behavior is there. You're absolutely right. It's very hard for your body to unlearn it. So I, I think that's an awesome analogy. And I think that, you know, I, I've never heard it put that way. And I think from a patient perspective, if you're a patient who's in pain, you have to think about that and you have to say, oh, that makes sense. Like the longer that you've been in pain, the harder it is to get out of it because you know, now you're just more used to it. And those movement patterns may have changed a little bit, or you may have been trying to do the same movement pattern, um, but pain just continues to persist. But yeah, I mean, the, at the end of the day, I, I think there's no question that when something hurts, um, the way that your muscles fire changes. 
Um, there's no coincidence that, you know, when somebody has neck pain and pain shooting down their arm, that when you test their posterior chain, um, the muscles are a lot weaker. We strengthen those muscles up. We restore some of the activation patterns of those muscles that are, you know, are functioning a little bit differently. And then, you know, we do some hands-on manual treatment and then all of that stuff goes away, you know? So there is definitely a link to pain and weakness, or I don't even want to say weakness. I should say more so neurophysiological connections to the muscle to where the muscle just loses, you know, its ability to, to fire adequately or operate at its full potential. Because I, I can't necessarily say that we build strength in the short term that people are in uh, rehab, but we definitely do change mood, movement patterns and motor control patterns uh, within that process. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely see that in my clinic. And I think it's something that, you know, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about, uh, you know, learning pain. I think I, I can't really describe it any better than that, Craig. So yeah, like I said, a little out of left field, you know, a little baseball reference to go with the baseball reference there, but love it. I love it. Give me more. Speaking of the less common stuff. Well, I guess it, it's getting a little more common now. I think, you know, anyone out there paying attention to the research is we're seeing a lot more on sleep. So the next point we'll talk about is like, why is sleep so important? Uh, so we know sleep aids in recovery. Uh, it helps, uh, you know, it just kind of helps you get back to a better state. We know that. But one thing that I'll touch on uh, something that we don't think about quite as much, in my opinion, is the cognitive benefit of having consistent sleep. So they've done some studies on athletes and they, they kind of, they, they had their standard group and then they had a group where they said, let's increase your sleep, let's make it consistent, and then let's just take some uh, measurements. And I think they use basketball players, swimmers, something else, I can't remember exactly right now. But the general gist of it, uh, from a cognitive standpoint, is they had a little bit better reaction time. Uh, they had a little bit better performance uh, compared to the group without a little bit uh, without increased sleep. So I think when we're thinking about training, you know, we have to realize that when we're in the gym or training for whatever we might be training for, that's just a small component of it. Like if we really want to see these gains, we got to think of like what's happening outside the gym as well. It's equally as important. It's got to be some modification we just kind of make to our whole lifestyle. And I think when you're getting uh, consistent sleep and you're practicing good sleep hygiene, which I'll touch on in a second here, not only does it let you recover adequately, but it allows that cognitive function to improve. And you can kind of be mentally present, not only throughout the day, but when you're, you know, doing your, your training sessions uh, and by good sleep hygiene, I mean, like no electronics before bed, you know, I'm guilty of looking at those stupid Facebook videos right before I go to sleep. I do it like every night. So I got to work on my sleep hygiene. Uh, you know, just kind of regulating your training and your sleep schedule and trying to really not mess with your sleep-wake schedule too much and just try to reduce stress. So a lot of things that aren't really gym dependent, you know, like when we're thinking about how am I going to get my vertical jump higher so I'm better at basketball, like we're not thinking about sleep normally. But I think it's one of those things that we can bring into the conversation and have if it helps people realize that what you're doing outside of the gym plays a major factor on your sport performance, then, you know, I think we're doing our job here. So is that something you ever talked to people about Drew? Yeah, I mean, I do. Uh, usually it comes in after, you know, say I have patients who I see earlier in the morning and they're just like, Oh, I got no sleep last night, you know, and we'll talk about what their workout is and how they're dreading their workout. And usually 
people will dread going to the gym if they haven't had enough sleep. Like they will say like, oh man, I, I just don't feel like I'm ready for this. And that's actually a sign that maybe that should just be a rest day for you. I know people hate hearing that, but that's just a sign that your body just may not be ready uh, for what it's about to have happen to it. Um, especially with things like CrossFit, where it's hit training or hit style type training. Um, and people who are doing this like five to six days a week, um, you know, it's very easy for you to have, you know, one off day from a sleep standpoint. And then you go in and you're expecting to be able to push your body to pretty, pretty large heights, um, you know, athletically, physically, mentally, um, all together. And that in and of itself can put not only predispose you to injury, but also kind of hurt some of your recovery process in general. Um, Another part of sleep that I think is oftentimes untapped, uh, and I'll speak about this on the podcast. I'm good with that. Um, I actually have sleep apnea. And if you looked at my frame and you know my past like exercise history, you would never expect that. So from a sleep apnea standpoint, uh, when I went and had some of my testing done, I did not even enter REM sleep for more than 30 seconds. Um, I never snored. I just stopped breathing. So if you feel like you're going to sleep and you're not recovering, um, there could be an underlying issue. You know, maybe you're sleeping for 10 hours a day or eight hours a day, and you still feel like you haven't rested. Like, reach out to a provider, a pulmonologist or a sleep specialist or an ENT who specializes in sleep, um, get a test done because recovery is so important. Um, you know, I remember when I was first diagnosed with sleep apnea, I said, Oh, geez, I got to sleep with this machine. I got to have this, this thing on my face. Like it's going to be so uncomfortable. How am I going to sleep like that? Listen, I don't go anywhere without my CPAP machine. Um, because I feel such a huge difference between sleeping with that machine, uh, versus sleeping without it. Um, and I was actually diagnosed towards the tail end of, uh, graduate school. So imagine how much easier graduate school could have been, uh, if I could have spent more time awake and alert listening to some of those lectures. Um, but it really does impact not only your ability to learn and think it impacts your ability to, uh, you know, perform as far as like having a physical capacity and then it affects your overall mentality which is another uh key secret point that we want to hit on today as far as uh prs and um building strength so craig why don't you tell us a little bit about mentality so this is one of my favorite things to uh to talk about because it has like a big, it's a big deal of you kind of knowing yourself. I'm really into this kind of stuff, like this mindfulness and just kind of like being in tune with what you're doing. And when I use, when I say mentality here, I mean like the ability to train to a beneficial point. So what I mean by that is uh, picture this uh, if you, if you can't, you know, so if you have, you know, if you're pushing some weight or if you're pulling some weight, or if you're performing an exercise, there's a threshold in which you need to reach to gain benefit from it. I think we can all agree on that, you know? And I think the tough part is mentally allowing yourself to reach and go through that threshold. So like, for example, some of the studies I've looked at is people training at a lower percent of their one rep max. So, uh, you know, a range in which you would try to do 
12 reps, let's say, for example, you're not going to reach that point of this, this, this threshold of benefit, let's say, until maybe like from reps like eight to 12, you know, whereas let's say if you're working at a higher percent of your one rep max and you're doing sets of four or six, you're reaching that threshold much sooner. Both are beneficial. And I would lobby to say that you need to do both. But I think the hard part is, is, is hitting that threshold and knowing that I need to work to not complete failure. I would, I would argue that consistently working to failure is a bad idea, but working to fatigue is good. And by that, I mean, when you're done, you have maybe one to four reps left in the tank if you needed to do them, but you, you, you don't because we're not training full maximally. And I think that's such a hard skill to learn. I think a lot of us get caught up in the, okay, my, I got my little book here. My program says I'm going to do a uh, bench press three sets of 12. So I'm going to put my weight on there. I'm just going to do 12 no matter what. And then that's good. You know, like maybe that day 12 wasn't enough to reach the threshold or maybe 12 was too many, like getting to know yourself and saying like, okay, I've reached this point of fatigue but not true failure is really hard, but I think it's super beneficial. Cause I think a lot of people for some movements can undertrain it just because they're dialed into the, okay, I need to do three sets of 12 and it might be too easy. Yeah. Um, or it sounds the, like they're too, too focused on like the reps rather than listening to what their body needs or how many, how many more they have in the tank. Exactly. Even with like the heavier stuff, like if someone's like, you know, I'm, I'm pushing five sets of three today and they knock out all five, six, three, super easy, you know, like, did they hit the threshold, you know? And it's like, I can't tell them that. I don't know how they feel, you know, but I think that uh, anyone listening to this, getting to know yourself and just getting to know what that feeling is, I think is super important. Um, the tough part is, is like, like, how do you train someone to do that? You know, uh, to this point, I think the strategy I've been is I've had someone work to failure like legitimate failure, which mentally is very hard to do. And I said, okay, this is, you know, based on this weight, we could do 15 reps here. So I say, know this feeling, lock this feeling in. And now when you get to 12, that's how you should feel it. So when you are at rep 12 of this 15 rep set of failure, that's, that's like the sweet spot, you know? And I think finding that sweet spot can be a hard thing to do and it can be a hard thing to train, but I would encourage anyone that's listening to, to kind of try to find that spot if it makes sense. Is that anything you ever talk about, Drew, or I guess what's your, what's your feelings on this? Yeah, I think mentality is huge. I mean, you have to go into something with, it's like this delicate balance of listening to your body, actually knowing your body. Let's start there. Knowing your body, listening to your body, and then being able to extrapolate that with a certain rep scheme or a certain set. I think a lot of times people hear like, oh, three sets of 12, they just go through the motions of that. But there's a different, if you're really locked into your training program, you're, you're feeling for certain things. You're paying attention to certain things. Um, you're su super nuanced when it comes to your training. So I, I think the, the best thing you said there is the difference between training to fatigue and training to failure. Because I think a lot of people don't understand the difference. They, they think like training to fatigue and failure are the exact same things. Um, when oftentimes that's, that's completely false failure. You have zero left in the tank fatigue. You still have some left in the tank, but you don't have to train to failure every single day with every single set. You can't, your body physically will break down. 
you will go backwards and you will not get stronger. So I think that's a, those are great points. And I echo everything that you just said there. Yeah, definitely a big, I would say, underlooked, underlooked part, but you know, that's why we're here. We're talking about that. That's why we're here. That's what we do. Speaking of underlooked, I know you're big into velocity-based training. So I'm going to let you have this one and I'm just going to try to assist as best I can. So our next secret is you should incorporate velocity-based training into your training programs. So this is a different type of training. A lot of people haven't heard about it, but what the goal of velocity-based training, it's basically a modality of strength training that relies upon the speed of movement of a load that you've lifted instead of just the weight of the load or taking a percentage of that weight. So the emphasis here isn't about how many pounds you're lifting. It's how fast you're moving a whatever load. So the load doesn't stay the same. The velocity is what stays to say the same. So the goal of velocity-based training is to improve your overall power output. So if we're, again, thinking mathematics, force times velocity equals power. If you can generate more power, so, well, let's do this. Every movement, if you're doing 10 reps of a bench press at a specific weight, There's two different things that can be measured within that. You can measure the weight component and you can measure how fast those reps are going or how fast the bar is actually moving. And then from that, you can extrapolate this unit of power. Power in and of itself can improve speed. It can improve explosiveness. It can improve vertical jump. So power is multifactorial. The great thing about training power is one, you have to have a very specific mentality. And two, you can do it relatively safely because it's independent of load. It's actually so independent of load that you're typically using somewhere between 40% and 75% of your one rep max for this. So with lighter loads, you're also doing lower reps. So again, this all sounds, it's almost contradictory to what most people think of. So what a typical rep scheme would look like for velocity-based training would be five sets of two to five repetitions at a target velocity of, say, um, 0.75 to 0.8 meters per second. Now, you need specific types of equipment to measure meters per second um, and measure some of the speed, like bar speed and things like that. However, you can also do this within... Uh, rep ranges if you don't have that. Like I said, somewhere between like 40 and 75% of your one rep max. The difference with this type of training is you're looking for what's called the maximal voluntary contraction. So you want to move that bar as fast as possible, or that weight doesn't have to be a bar, as fast as possible throughout the duration of the movement itself. And that's why you're only doing two to five reps because it has you don't want that bar speed or that movement speed to slow down. The goal of this is to avoid training to failure or even fatigue. So if you're doing velocity-based training, then, and you're doing this the right way, and you're moving that weight through that range of motion, by the end of that set, you should actually not feel like exhausted or gassed like you typically would if you were training to fatigue or even to failure. And there's different types of 
um, strength and endurance that you can develop with this. So you can develop what's called like speed strength or strength speed. So depending on how fast the bar is moving, if you're moving the bar at a faster speed, you're developing more speed strength. So you'd be using a lighter load. If you're looking to develop strength over speed, you'd move it at lower loads because you're not going to move the bar as fast with heavier weights. So again, I'm dropping a lot of information here, but this is something that could possibly be put into deload programs, which is where a lot of people, when they do a deload program, a lot of times they, they deload so much that they lose a training effect, you know, going into their next cycle. You can't, you don't want to necessarily just take a bunch of time off, um, but you still need to have enough load or enough volume to be able to pick up where you left off and then start to make gains. So velocity-based training, I believe, actually is a great segue into like that time frame where you decide, hey, I'm not going to use tons and tons of weights or I'm not going to go super heavy in this cycle. So you just finished up a strength cycle. You might be able to do something more velocity-based where you're still building power and you're just building up the speed at which you move weight through the universe versus just moving lots and lots of weight at whatever speed you choose. Does that make sense, Craig? It does. I think it's like an interesting component too, because I think it's different and I think it's fun. And I think it gets you training kind of like an athlete too. You know, I think it's a little break from the norm. And I think that it can be a cool thing to add to a program, especially if you feel like you're stuck. And I think increasing velocity of a specific movement can help you like you know, I know it's big with powerlifters, right? Like they do a lot of this, you know, because when you, when you are going for like absolute strength and you're just trying to move a huge heavy load as possible, having the power to just even push that bar up can be super effective. So I think as anyone weightlifting that is hitting a plateau that has never tried this stuff, I would be excited to hear what happens if they give this go, give this a go for a couple months. There's also certain types of athletes that respond better to velocity-based training. Um, and, you know, I know in the past we've talked about different types of like fast twitch and slow twitch muscle fibers or intermediate muscle fibers. There are some people who will respond better to using submaximal weight as fast as possible and their body actually favors this type of load and they will actually get strength gains at the end of a velocity-based cycle. Um, I, for one, have experienced that with one vertical jump and then also hitting a, a back squat PR. So, um, whereas traditional strength training has always been something that I've been limited on. It's never been super helpful for me. Uh, but when switching to more of a velocity based type program, uh, it was a total game changer. So my training from here on out will be, you know, velocity based, probably first and foremost. And then I will also do, you know, a mix just to kind of switch things up of smaller cycles of more, um, kind of traditional types of strength training and then kind of flip flop back and forth to see if I can, you know, what my body best responds to. So I mentioned deload from, uh, you know, in terms of velocity based training, Craig, do you want to tell us a little bit, bit about deloading? Because that's our next secret to getting stronger and then hitting your next PR. So for anyone listening, that's never heard this term before, basically a deload is just a period of time in which you, uh, you know, have your predetermined typical like exercises or weight that you use. And you just essentially take some time off. Uh, sometimes people will just do nothing. Sometimes people will do a much lighter weight. Um, it just kind of depends on, you know, uh, what you like to do. Now there is some debate out there, like 
do you need to do it? Is it good? Is it bad? Um, my opinion is I think for like, like high level lifters or athletes or people that are like really pushing themselves to the brink. Like, I think this kind of stuff is essential. Um, I do, um, you kind of can only take so much. And I think if you're, you know, working at a high level for so long, like your body needs a break for the average person. Um, I think this, in this sense, we can get a little more non-traditional. If you're the type that just wants to take a structured time off, like, great, go for it. Like, I think that's awesome. Um, but just kind of circling back to our mentality thing earlier. Uh, I think if you get good at listening at your body and some days, you know, if you're maybe a week, you're just not feeling quite like yourself, dropping the weight is okay. Or if you need to take a couple of days off, that's okay. And you can kind of treat that as like a deload and kind of like a rest period. I don't think it has to be like this traditional structured, like, okay, I've lifted for four weeks now. I got to take my one week off, you know, um, can it be that? Absolutely. Does it have to be that? Um, no, I, I don't think so. But I do think that there will come a time to where even if you're a novice or first time lifter, like there will get to a point where you feel like your body is telling you that you might need to back off a little bit. And I, I think that's the best time to deload um, is when you feel like you're ready. And uh, people are always worried about like, oh, I'm going to lose progress or I'm going to gain weight or, uh, you know, any of that. And there's, there's enough research out there to refute that, especially if the deload is done for like the traditional one to two weeks, like you're not going to lose progress. That's like, I get that question sometimes. And um, you know, when you first get back after a couple of weeks, you might need to, you know, shake the dust off. But besides that, like from a performance standpoint, uh, you should not suffer. So just remember that when you're considering deloading, uh, in like the CrossFit world or with the, you know, basketball world, Drew, like, how, how are you using this like deloading principle? You know, I typically I will deload people during their rehab. <laughs> so right. a lot of times that, that's what I tend to do. I have to deload them a little bit. So I will have them continue training, but I will deload specific body parts. So for example, I have a patient right now who has a uh, rotator cuff tendinopathy. So I am currently in the process of deloading her from doing tons of overhead work, um, you know, handstand push-ups, uh, pull-ups, different things like that, things that would overload the rotator cuff. So I'm using it more in the rehab sense where I'm deloading specific movements or spe for specific muscles um, in terms of being able to reload those muscles and build them back up. So I would say I I'm more specific in my deloading for rehab principles. Um, but I, I do have a question for you. This is, this is something I get and this just came to me people will tell me they don't feel like they got a workout if they're not sore the next day. Is that a thing? What do you think? That's a, that's a tricky one. Um, because I think people, they wear the soreness as like a badge of honor, you know, like I've done something. Today. Do you need to be sore though? Like, does it have to happen? Absolutely not. No, no, I would say no. What do you think? What do you tell people? I usually tell people, you know, and again, the, the soreness, cause I, I used to think this, like I used to, you know, work out and lift weights and I used to, you know, wake up the next morning. And if I couldn't like say I had a, a really good squat session or did a, a boatload of lunges um, and I couldn't like walk up the stairs or sit down on the toilet or something like that uh, without being super sore. I, I used to think I did, I did good the day before. Um, when I went through some of my other types of training routines in the past, especially with some of the velocity stuff, um, I was almost never sore, which is 
kind of weird to think about, um, but I had probably some of the best strength gains. So I think for me personally and the experiences that I had um, and have and continue to have, I don't think you actually need to be sore to get stronger and see improvements in body composition and muscle size, muscle growth. Um, but I think it's really interesting because that's usually something that, you know, I've even walked into certain places that say like the cure for uh, CrossFit soreness is more CrossFit. Uh, you know, I've, I've actually seen signs like that outside of gyms. Um, and it's like, no, that's, that's not quite it. Like we're, we're sending the wrong message sometimes. And again, this isn't just CrossFit that says, you know, the reason I use a CrossFit reference is because that's just what I, I, the, the world that I'm entrenched in a lot more of. Um, but this is all sports. This is, you know, football players, uh, high school, college, professional. You see this across all spectrums where people attribute, you know, I have to be sore to have had a good workout. Yeah. I mean, people just love feedback, you know, yes. it, it's be, that's want, a great, that's a great yeah, point. Feedback. Feedback. Maybe like taking a test and then like your teacher's like you passed, but like, you don't know the score, you know, like we just like, we want to know, like we yeah. want to know something is happening. You know, I think it's hard to, hard to trust. So I would encourage anyone that's listening that, you know, subscribes to this, I must be sore theory, um, be data driven. If you get good results and you're not sore, then why you don't, you don't need to be sore. You don't need to change anything. You know, I think you can still see that same result, you know? So I think we need to do a podcast on how like to have a data driven focus to your fitness, because I don't think enough people do. And I think that's why most people don't get results because I think they would realize they'd be able to see results if they were more data-driven and they, they knew what to track. Maybe we should do a podcast just on that in the future. Cause everyone gets the nutrition macros thing. Like that's easy to conceptualize. But I think when it comes to actually tracking your training and your workouts, not enough people do it. I agree with you hundred percent. Let's lock it in, dialed in all listeners, be prepared. We'll do it. Get ready. Get ready. Cause it's coming. Get your calculators out. (laughs) Get your calculators out. All right, Craig, let's hit the last and final secret. Um, I'm going to let you take this one because I think that you have a lot more to add here. I'll, I'll throw my two cents in at the end, but we've come up with our seventh secret being dun, 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 dun. The last one, probably the most important one, really. Honestly, uh, the most important nutrition. Really, yeah, yeah, is nutrition. It is. I, I typically tell people like, if you're looking at like how to get results or just, you know, performance results in general, like think of it like a pyramid, you know, like, I don't think they use this anymore, but when we were younger, there was like the food pyramid where it was like, <laughs> now it's something different, right? It's or it's shaped different or something. But anyways, the old school, the OG food pyramid was like layered. And it was like, once you got to the top, it was less important. So like the little triangle part was desserts. You're not supposed to have a lot of desserts. You know, at the very bottom, it was like bread. So eat a lot of bread, don't eat a lot of desserts, like kind of this tiered system of importance. And if we like put this onto performance and fitness, like what would be at the bottom of our pyramid? Genetics first, you know, like some people are just built a certain way, you know, that's like kind of the base of our pyramid. I would say the next step up is nutrition. Like what are you putting in yourself to get these results or to maintain this training or to reach your goals? And then the peak of the pyramid is like the actual training itself, you know? So the training is super important, but there's like other things that we need to be thinking about. And I think the, the things that are in our control are things like our sleep cycle, stress levels, our nutrition, you know, are we 
happy at our job? You know, like, do we have a lot of stresses going on in our life? I think that all falls into that like middle piece of the pie as far as like uh, modifiable things, you know, I'm not going to give any specific advice here. Um, that's not really where my scope lies, but I think that if you are not thinking about nutrition at all, you need to, you need to talk to someone about it. And this is sort of where my plug is for all the dietitians and nutritionalists and, uh, people making diet plans for people that exercise. Like I absolutely think it's worth getting hooked up with one of those people, um, because this is such a crucial component, you know, like we talked about it earlier with like mentality and it, this and sleep, this becomes like a outside of the gym is just as important as inside. So if you're, if you're only doing half training really hard, you got to get that second half of sleep, nutrition and lifestyle to make sure that you're going to, you're going to get through it. Cause what you do outside of the gym has a huge effect on how you perform when you're in there. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the other thing that's really important is seeing an actual professional, not, not just doing the keto diet or, um, you know, doing something like that because your, your health history may be, it may be contraindicated for you to do, you know, something like the keto diet or some of these different types of diets. It may be detrimental to you in the long run. Um, I know from my experience with my diet, and I'll share a little bit of this, I struggle with two aspects. My diet is typically pretty high in fat. I struggle to get enough protein and I get plenty of carbs. Like I get just enough carbs. So like if I was to do like macro counting, for example, my carbs are right on point. My fat's high, my protein's low. So I know that about myself. So just having some of that information without even tracking, you can adjust some of the decisions that you make, you know, at a restaurant or even if you're not currently tracking your macros, you're just aware of that. So I can say, you know what, I need to focus a little bit more on my protein intake because I know for a fact that I just get, I just don't get enough of it. Um, so I need to be having that extra protein shake a day. Um, or I know I don't get enough fruits and veggies, so I need to do a better job of that. So just having a consultation with somebody who specializes in like diet nutrition um, can open up your eyes. And in doing so, a lot of people that I know of have been training for a very long time and they struggle with results. They have a very well dialed in training program. And then when they get their diet on board, that's where the transformation happens. So if you really are trying to maximize your results and you have a goal that you want so bad, but you're just focusing on the training aspect and not the nutrition diet side, um, link them together, like get them on the same page because you will see results. Um, just doing one or the other, it's going to be limited. But if you put them both together, man, like it's powerful and changes can happen rapidly. Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. Talk to your dietitian. Shout out to all the dietitians out there. Yep. And actually we did a podcast episode a while back with, uh, Rachel Landis who does, um, a lot of nutrition work. Uh, with people in the area. So if you're someone local to the Columbus area and looking for someone who's a dietitian, uh, reach out to L Rachel Landis. She'll hook you up and she'll take really good care of you. She helps you build a good relationship with food. Um, and then she also does, uh, combines that with uh, some personal training and small group classes too. So you got some options there. But Craig, uh, with that being said, you want to wrap up this podcast and give us some key takeaways? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is we don't need to go through all seven things again. I think 
one of the overarching things I think that listeners can take from today's podcast is like fitness is so individualized. You know, it's not like a, you go online, you get a generic list of exercises and then that's right for you. I think learning what your goals are, shaping your training towards those goals, and then just being a little bit more like mentally in touch with yourself of how the training is going and then trying to hit those modifiable things outside of the gym. If you can get all that together, that's where I think you're going to have success. It's not just following some generic piece of paper with some random exercises. Take the time to know yourself and know what you want to do. And then I think you're going to start seeing better results. Thank you for tuning into the Straight Talk Physio podcast. If you like what you're hearing, it would mean the world to us if you subscribe to this podcast and the Peak Physiotherapy and Performance YouTube channel. For more information about us, please check us out at Facebook at Peak Physiotherapy and Performance and on Instagram at P3 Physiotherapy. For more information about Craig, you can follow him at Dr. Craig G underscore PT on Twitter and on Instagram. If you have any topic suggestions, comments, or questions, then feel free to email us at the straight talk physio podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for watching and we hope you have an awesome day.